0: if you are, again, if you're new here, uh, we actually began a new short sermon series. It began last week, and uh, we're continuing on today. And this is kind of going to set up the entire year for us, because we want this to be almost to be the foundation of what we're going to be trying to doing the rest of this year. Um, and it's, it's our goal, as I mentioned the past few weeks in 2022-2023, it's on the back uh, slide, is uh, we want to be a community that practices the way of Jesus. We want to be a community that does not just profess we follow Jesus and we know Jesus, but we want to be a community that actually walks in the way of Jesus. And again, this series is going to try to set that up of like why we're doing this. And one of our new practices that we want to do as a church when we meet together is uh, we want to recognize God is here that we believe God is present when we gather together and especially when he speaks through his word, we want to recognize that it is God who is speaking. And so in light of that, uh, if we could all actually rise together as we read the scripture passage for today. So if you have your programs or your Bibles, we're going to turn to the gospel of John chapter 14. John chapter 14, and we'll read verses 15 all the way to verse 21. So this is Jesus with his disciples. Uh, This is the last supper. And Jesus is addressing his followers, and he says this starting in verse 15 of chapter 14. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. This is the reading of God's word. Can I pray for us, and we'll we'll, we'll start our time. Let's pray. Lord, would you bless this Lord's gathering here today? Would you bless this Sunday? Help us to sense your presence with us and help us, O Lord, to know that you have a word to say to this church. So would you bless, O Lord, this time together? And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. May you please be seated? So recently I've been enjoying um, Netflix because they have uh, all these, like, comedy shows, like stand-up comedians that are on these comedian comedy specials. And what's been nice about it is uh, you're seeing more Asian-American comedians. And it's cool about seeing Asian Americans is when they're standing, you see like these comics who are Asian Americans, uh, they're around like almost my age, and they are describing like the Asian American experience in a very funny and relatable way. There's one person who I saw recently, his name is uh, Jimmy Yang. I'm not sure if you guys know him. He's, he was a star on Silicon Valley, the TV show. And one thing he said that I thought was really funny was how he describes the way Asian people relate to their first generation Asian parents, and I think it's just universal. We could all, if if you're Asian here, you could just all agree, like, that is my family. And one thing he says about Asians is that Asian Americans, like, we love our parents. Like, we are deeply devoted to our parents, but we will never say I love you to them. That's just not the way it works. And so Jimmy, he, the, Jimmy Yang, he gave an example where he said one day, I think he, he said he was, like, on drugs, so he called his mom randomly, and he called her, and he said, hey, mom, I just want you to know, I love you. And his mom just started crying, like, weeping. And she's like, Jimmy, do you have cancer? Because why else would you say that to me? And it's kind of like this humorous way of, of him sharing how, like, Asians, we don't know what to do with that. Because we don't relate to one another in this way. We don't express love through our words or saying I love you to each other. But what what do Asians do? We express love through service, through loyalty. And that resonated with me because that kind of encapsulated my relationship with my parents. Uh, They they are, I I love my parents, and they, they worked hard, and the way they loved me was by working hard, and they'd give me advice about life. And the way I would show love to my parents is i study hard, and i try to obey them and listen to them. And again, I'm very grateful for my parents. They were were great parents, uh, because they they did a lot to give me a good life. Um, But I also feel, like a lot of you, there's low-key trauma (laughs) with my parents. I'm not really sure if I experienced uh, a full parent relationship that I would have wanted to have experienced, because there's still a barrier between myself and my parents. Uh, And so the result is, because we related to each other in a way that felt a little bit like just service and so forth, uh, I would always honor my parents. I would serve them, I was committed to them. And yet, I don't know if I really enjoyed being with them. It was kind of a duty or an obligation to eat dinner, to visit them, and that was just the nature of my parents. And these were like normal, good parents. And I think for a lot of uh, Asian Americans who grew up, we, we kind of want to do it differently with our kids. We, uh, when I, A lot of people who are my peers and they have kids, one thing we want to say is we, we want to work hard, we want to make sure that there's loyalty and so forth we also want to have the relationship be really personal with our children. And we kind of see us practicing that with our kids as we get older. And the reason why I share that is because I think a lot of us, we relate to God like Asian Americans relate to their parents, where God is someone who, if he's there, we honor him, we'll serve him, we'll stay committed to him, but I don't know if we like him. I don't know if we actually enjoy being with him. And the reason why is because the way we relate to God, we talked about this last week, was there's a framework that a lot of us have. Some of us, we relate to God in a way that we describe as life under God, where we see God is in control, we're supposed to obey him and follow him, and what happens is when you relate to God in that way, as true as that might be, you feel a deep burden when that's the main way you relate to God. Others of us, we relate to God with life over God, where God, we adopt his laws, we believe what he says is true, and yet, we don't really relate to him as a person. It's very impersonal. And, that, and you know you're living that way when spirituality, Jesus, it's a very impersonal thing for you. And for some of us, we live life for God. Life for God where we do a lot of things for him, but we realize we don't really know him. We don't really enjoy him. And you know this is you when you feel really tired. Like church makes you tired. Reading your Bible makes you tired. Life makes you tired. And that's how a lot of us relate to God. This is a natural way that we kind of approach him. But when you actually read the Bible and what the Bible says, how does God want to relate to you? We talked last week how God doesn't want to be under, over, or like a life for you. But he wants it to be a life with God. A life with him. That's the whole goal. Because we talked about how the story of scripture, the way it all begins is we actually have in the story in the beginning a God who is with one another. We believe in a triune God. where the Father, Son, and Spirit. They weren't just doing things. They weren't just ruling things. But they were with each other. They were enjoying each other's presence. And that's why in Genesis, we, we see in the beginning of a story where God, he creates mankind, not so they could serve him and to do things for him, but so God could be with them. So they could walk in the garden and be together. And when you, when you actually keep reading the Bible, the rest of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets... It only makes sense if it's a life with God. Because if you read the Bible like God wants me to do things for him or I have to obey him, then the book of Leviticus makes no sense. The book of Numbers makes no sense. There's so many parts of the Bible about the temple and the tabernacle. You're like, what's the point of this? And it only makes sense if this is God who wants to be with you. He's the God who wants to be with his people. And that's why it makes sense why in in the New Testament, in the gospel, is why God comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Because this is like the epitome of God wanting to be with his people. He literally dwelt among us, and then at the very end in Revelation, we actually see that the end story where it is all headed is new heavens, new earth, where one day the final picture that the story of Scripture says about life is God will be with us. That's what life will be at the end. And so here's the question, though. This is kind of the, the theme of what's happening in the beginning, in the middle, and in the, in the end. What happens now? What are we supposed to do now with Jesus coming until the end, like in this present moment, how are we supposed to relate with God and what I would argue is it's the same thing. It's the same theme over and over again. Is we are supposed to relate with God right now to be with him. That is the whole goal. But the problem is, though, is even though that might be something we could understand, it's, we have to almost ask ourselves, but why? Like, why is this something that we need? And maybe even more importantly, like, what does this look like? What does life with God look like? And it's hard because we don't have a point of reference because we don't meet many people who seem to experience that. If you told me, uh, show me somebody who lives a life under God where they obey God and, you know, they're fearful of him, I could point to plenty of people going, that person, that person, they're definitely living life like that. A lot of examples of Christians like that. Or a Christian who's living life over God where they exemplify morality and Christian principles, but they don't really know God. I know plenty of people like that, too. Or maybe Christians who are doing a lot of things for God. They're serving, 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 but they're really tired. I have plenty of examples of those folks. But do you know anybody where you can look at them and go, you know, they are living life with God. You just tell the way they relate with God, like, he's, like, with them. And I think for a lot of us, we don't see that. Because if you live a life with God, you know what your life will look like? There will be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. The fruit of the Spirit will develop. That's what life with God looks like. And sadly, that's really rare, even in the life of the Christian. And so what we want to do today in part two of our three-part series is we want to look at what does life with God look like, and we're going to do that by looking at the chapter we just read in John chapter 14, and we're going to answer three questions, three questions. Question number one is, why do we need a life with God? Like, why is this the type of way we are supposed to relate with God? Number two is, how do we have a life with God? How do we even have this separate relationship with him? And then number three, what does it look like to experience this? Like, how do you actually experience this life with God? So why do we need it? How do we have it? What does it look like to experience it? First, why do we need a life with God? So the the chapter we just read in John 14, the context is that Jesus is with his disciples and they have been together for about three years at this point, the chapter we just read. And they are celebrating the Passover meal, this Jewish festival where they are remembering God's goodness. And this is going to be their final meal together. And in this final meal, Jesus, he drops a bombshell to his followers. He tells them, hey, guys, I'm leaving. I have to go. You're not going to see me again. And this is devastating. This is devastating news. Because the disciples, they left everything to follow Jesus these past three years. Imagine that you got recruited by somebody who's in Silicon Valley. And he said, hey, you coders, all of you who are working in the coding industry, that's about half our church now. There's a new startup that I'm starting. A lot of potential. You have to move to Silicon Valley. But I'll be with you. We'll do this together. you get stock options and so forth. And you decide, you know what? I'll do it. You go, you move, it's great, the company is growing, it's booming, it's becoming something that has a large social media presence. A lot of people are buying the product, and you're like, dude, this company's awesome. And what happens is you have a Christmas party that the CEO throws, he goes, This is an awesome past three years that we've had as a company, but just wanna let you know I am resigning now. Sorry, guys, the show is over. How would you feel? What would you feel if you felt that way? It would be devastating, right? It'd be like, I left everything to give myself to this startup, and now you're bouncing? And you announce it at Christmas? Like, how can you do this? And that's what Jesus is doing here. It's the Passover. It's supposed to be a time where they remember God's goodness. And Jesus is saying, I'm leaving. And it's even worse than a CEO resigning, because look at the language Jesus uses to describe what's happening. Look at verse 18, what Jesus says. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. He's describing them as the situation, it's going to feel like you're an orphan. It's this very tender type of relationship that Jesus had with his disciples. Not like a boss, but like, almost like a father. And obviously Jesus, when he describes them as like orphans, he's not saying they're going to be literal orphans. But what does it mean? What's the imagery of an orphan? Somebody who's experienced deep loss. Not just any type of loss, but the loss of stability, the loss of security, the loss of intimacy. That's what happens when you're an orphan. Your parents are gone. And you're in this very vulnerable state. And just as the disciples, they were not literal orphans. A lot of us, I don't think most of us here are literal orphans. But this imagery, it still applies to us. Because like the disciples, we experience loss all the time. If you're new to our church, just know, if this is the type of church for you, I just want to warn you. Like I often warn our church how hard life is. <laughs> like, life is, life is hard. Like, it is brutally hard. Because when you get older... The seasons of transitions and tragedies, it, it just evokes these orphan-like questions. You know what orphan questions are, what orphans will ask all the time internally? What's gonna happen now with my life? Where do I go? Who's gonna be there with me? Who's gonna guide me? And this, these questions get louder and louder for all of us as we get older, because life is hard. Uh, I, I, I pick on this group a lot, but it, it's just it's too easy. Uh, postgraduates, there's a reason we're doing a cohort together because your life is hard. After college, that transition from college where everyone's happy to post-college where nobody's happy, it's really lonely. Uh, You have to establish your career and you're not really being compensated well. You have this pressure to get married and everyone's wondering when you get married and it's really hard. And I feel for you when you're in that kind of zone that's there and I have bad news for you. If you think that's hard, wait till you become a parent. It's even harder uh, as a parent you transition from as a parent from freedom to slavery where life it's not just lonely it's really lonely because nobody has time to hang out with each other you're not you're not trying to establish a career you're questioning your career can you still do this and it's not about getting married it's about staying married like can i should i stay married how do i make this work like it's hard and and it's even more depressing cuz i i was One time complained to my mom like how it's so hard with three kids, they're all young, and this is like the hardest time as a parent. And she kept laughing. She's like, you think this is hard? Wait till they become teenagers. And she just started laughing. I was like, dear God, like, it just gets harder. And in fact, it gets so hard that I realized as you get older, people talk about this. There was a BuzzFeed article that I looked at, and the title of the article, it was 25 Things That Get Harder As You Get Older. So these are like grandparents who are describing, you all know how hard life is. And they said some things, like, so this is things that get harder as you get older, and some of them are funny, and as it keeps going, it gets a little less funny. So, for example, so say, you know what gets harder as you get older? Digesting a meal without getting heartburn. We could all feel that, right? As we, some of us, we go, yeah, that gets harder as you get older. But here's another one. Getting up after you've kneeled down. Oh, man, if you don't know what that means, wait till you're, like, in your 30s. Like, when you're on your knees and you get up, you're like, oh, it, it's so much harder as you get older. Another thing that gets harder, seeing and believing the best in people. Like really believing the best in people. That gets harder as you get older. Watching my dad and mom get older. Gets harder as you get older. Believing I can still do something with my life. Believing that I'll make an impact in my life. That gets harder to believe as you get older. Because again, as life is hard, It gets harder as we get older. And those orphan questions, what will I do? What's gonna happen next with my life? It gets louder, it gets louder. And here's the problem, and this is where it goes back to what we're talking about. If the only way you know how to relate with God is to live life under him, over him, or for him, do not be surprised if your life looks like a life apart from God. Because when you experience loss, the last thing you want to know is how do you obey God? Like, what does obedience look like? Like that, Even though that might be true, you do not want to hear that in that mode. Or when life gets hard, the last thing you want to know is how can you serve in a ministry to get close to God? Nobody cares when life gets hard how to serve in a ministry. And yet, if that's the only way you know and you think God wants to relate with you how you relate with him, then do not be surprised if God feels very far removed from your life because life gets harder. And that's why as we get older, God often seems very far away from us. And we all know this, right, where you don't need that type of type of comfort and care when life is really hard for you. I know for me, when I go through bouts of, like, sadness or depression, the last thing I want to hear from my friends when they come over is to let me know, hey, I read this book about depression, and this is what you should do, brother. I pre- it might be true, but not now. Like, I don't need to hear that right now. Or someone says, you know, you're going through a hard time, but you know what's going to happen? You're going to be this great pastor now who can relate to other people who are going through hard times. And again, it might be true, but not now. It's kind of annoying to hear somebody talk to me like that. And that's why for a lot of us, God, he's like a burden. Because that's kind of the, way, the only way we know how to relate with God. A God who tells us what to do, a God who tells us how to obey, a God who tells us what you've got to serve, and you got to do things in light of this. And again, that's why God, he feels very far away for older people. Because life is harder. And this is why Jesus, it's, what's interesting is he says, uh, even though we experience God that way, you're not supposed to. That's not the way God wants to experience life with you. And we notice because if you look at the, the passage again, when Jesus says, hey, you're going to be like orphans, notice what he tells them to comfort them. He doesn't go, hey, I'm leaving you, but hey, I have some good advice for you. When I'm gone, you got to do this. Or he doesn't say, hey, you know what? I'm leaving, but here's the reason why I'm leaving. It's going to lead to He doesn't do that. Look what it says in verse 18 and 20 again. Jesus tells them, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. A lot of stuff is going on, but let me just break it down very simply. He's saying stuff like, I will come to you. You will see me. You are in me, I in you. What's Jesus saying? You might feel like orphans, but don't worry. Here's my comfort. I will be with you. I'll be with you. I'm leaving, but I'm not abandoning you. You're going to feel lost, but you will feel my presence. That's Jesus' comfort. And this is how what Jesus is trying to comfort for a lot of us. It's it's his presence. His presence is what we need most when we face life. Because life is hard, and nothing you need more is someone to just be with you in the midst of that hardship. There's a book that's coming out soon, it's called Why Tears Matter. It's by this author named Benjamin Perry. And he describes this interesting thing where he says, You know, um, in movies and in TV shows, when someone's sad, you see a slow tear come? Like this one teardrop, right? And we go, and it's kind of almost funny when you see that, this slow teardrop that comes down. Do you know that's a real thing? It's a real thing. When you are angry and you cry, your tears go down fast. When you hit your foot, your tears go down fast. But when you are explain, displaying emotion of sadness and you cry, your tears literally drop slower. It's a biological thing. You know why? Because you produce more protein in your tear ducts. And because there's more protein in your tear ducts, your tears literally drop slower. The interesting is, well, why, does you, why do you do that? Why does the human body produce more protein in moments of deep, sad emotions in your tears? And his theory is so interesting where he says it's because your body knows what you need. Your body knows that when your tears is slowly dropping, it gives people a chance to notice it. It gives other human beings a chance to see it and to give you what you need, which is their care. Your body knows what you need in your pain. And that's why Jesus, this is what he, his comfort is, is when you are going through the hardships of life, you don't need instructions, you don't need a mission, you need someone to be with you to care for you, to be in their presence, to draw near. And that's why the Christianity offers good news. Because we believe in a God who isn't a God of the successful. He isn't a God of people who have it together. He's not a God of people who are doing mission work only. But we have a God of widows and orphans. We have a God who says he draws near to the brokenhearted. He dwells with those who are humble. He's with those who are suffering because he knows that's what we need in those moments. And as life gets harder, that's what we need most. Life not under, not over, not for God, but life with God. In the Chronicles of Narnia, if you're familiar with that story, it's about these children. They go into this fantasy land of Narnia, and they're there for years, and they spend time with this giant lion named Aslan, and he's like the Jesus figure of that story. And then the kids leave and they go back home. But in the sequel, Prince Caspian, the kids, they all come back, and then when they return, they see Aslan the lion, and Lucy, one of the children, she goes, oh my gosh, Aslan, you got so much bigger. And Aslan replies saying, it's because you got older. And she's so confused, going, wait, you you didn't grow bigger? And this is what Aslan says to her, quote, that is because you are older, little one. Every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And this is kind of, you know, Lucius Lewis, who's a Christian, and when he was writing this story, he was trying to pretty much illustrate this is what life with God is supposed to look like. As you get older, God gets bigger and bigger and bigger because God is with us this whole time. God is with you in the hardships of life, in the joys of life, in the highs and the lows, in the valleys and the mountains. Because God is not just telling you to do something or telling, instructing you, but God is with you there's this larger and larger sense of presence that he has as we get older. So when you relate to God like this, when he's with you, you see this big picture of God. And that's why for a lot of us, as we get older, again, isn't it oftentimes the opposite? As you get older, God is smaller and smaller and smaller. And could it be because we are relating with God in the way we're not supposed to? Life over God, life under God, life for God. But what we're invited to is we are invited to relate in a God where God wants to be with us. He wants us to know what that's like, to experience him when He's with us. And the question is now, well, how does that happen? And what does that look like? And so we'll go to the second part, which is how we have a life with God. Going back to the story in, in the Gospel of John, the passage of today, uh, why was Jesus leaving? Like Jesus says, I have to go. Sorry, guys, I ruined the Christmas party, but you're not going to see me. Why can't he just stay with them? And if you are familiar with this passage, you know why. Because Jesus, he's going to die. In fact, he's not just going to die, but he's going to be crucified on the cross. Which leads to a deeper question, which is, well, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Like, why did Jesus have to do that? And um, when I ask members, we we do this for our membership classes, where before you become a member, that's one question I ask is, like, why why did Jesus have to die? And you hear different answers. Some people say, well, he died, Jesus died. So he could be an example to us, to show us this is what true love is, and he died for us. And that's, you know, one theory that's there. Some people will say, well, the reason why Jesus died is so that he could pay for the penalty of my sin. I sinned, and he died, and so he removed that. Others will say he died so that we, he could remove the wrath of God. And again, all those are true. They all have truth in it. But look what Jesus says. Look what Jesus says is the reason why, according to him, the purpose, the big reason why he died. Those are all true, but look what he says in verse 18 and 20 again. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. And this is a key quote. And that day you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. What's Jesus saying here? The reason why Jesus is going to die is because this is the only way we can have life with him. This is the only way we can have life with God. According to the story of scripture, mankind, we were created to be with God. But Genesis says instead of being with God, we wanted to become like God. And what happened is because of that, we, uh, this, this separation happened. The Bible calls it sin. It broke our union with God. And it separates from the giver of life, which leads to death. And that must be overcome. And that's why the cross was so central. Because the cross, we believe as Christians, is he, Jesus died, took away the penalty that we deserve of death. And wiped away the sins of the world. And as a result, what happens is we now are able to have access to God. Because there's no longer condemnation, but there's now invitation to have life with him. Now the question though is when you, so when you place your faith in Jesus, yes, it removes the barrier, but it leads to something which Christians oftentimes don't emphasize enough. Which is we now have a relationship with God. We can now be with God. Because through Jesus' death, there's something that theologians say that I feel like is not talked about enough. It's not just justification or penal substitution or substitution. It's not just that. But there's this term that we should all be familiar with, which is called union with Christ. Union with Christ. I think it might be on the screen. Life with God means union with Jesus. And if if that term is kind of unfamiliar, let me break it down in two, uh, I think, simple ways. Union with Christ means you are in Christ. And Christ is in you. There is this union you now have with him when you place your faith in Jesus that gives you access to the Father. You are in Christ. To, mean, to say that you are in Christ, what that means is that your life and Jesus' life, when you place your faith in him and his saving work, your lives are so intertwined that you are like one. Jesus' righteousness covers you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it a different way. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin... So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Your life is so intertwined that Jesus' goodness covers you, and, and the Father views you like he views Christ. Uh, an illustration that I used to kind of flush this out. Some of you have heard this illustration before, but for those of you who are new, this is my favorite illustration. Uh, there's a person I read in the book where she was a woman and she worked in Disneyland uh, as Mickey Mouse. She was that, you know, the, the costume people, like she was Mickey Mouse in Disneyland. And she was dressed in a Mickey costume and she loved playing Mickey Mouse. She loved playing that costume because deep down inside, she expressed how she feels insecure around people. She's introverted. She's shy. She doesn't know how people feel about her. But when she puts on that Mickey costume, (laughs) everybody loves her. Everybody wants to come up to her. She's not shy anymore because she feels this confidence. She is covered by Mickey Mouse's righteousness. People view her as Mickey in that way. And it's, it's a silly thing that's there, but it kind of helps paint a picture of that's similar to what it means to be for, Christ, for you to be in Christ. His righteousness covers you, except it's not fictional, like Mickey. It's a real reality that's there, where the Father and others they are going to they relate to you in a way where your sin and your shame are not at the forefront, but it is covered by Christ. That's you are in Christ. But also, union means Christ in you. Christ in you. You are not only covered in Christ's righteousness, but Jesus go, goes on to say this weird thing where He dwells in you. Uh, Galatians chapter two, verse twenty, says it most explicitly. He says, "I have been crucified with Christ." As the Apostle Paul, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now I know we read that verse, going, "Oh yeah, I heard that verse before." But like, you ever pause to think about, like, what does that mean? Like a person lives in me. Like, what does Jesus really mean by that? If you come from more Eastern religions, you might interpret like Buddha. Like, oh, yeah, if you follow Buddha's teachings, then Buddha lives in you. Because as you follow his teachings, he lives in you. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Nor is it saying something along the lines of, oh, God, he's up there in heaven, and he looks down on you, and he's with you. Like, he's looking down going, mm, good job. That's not what Jesus is saying either. He is literally in you, he says. Jesus is in you. And he kind of explains it in more detail in the Gospel of John, the passage we just read. Look again in verse 16 and 17. He says... I will ask the father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth in the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. Jesus says there's going to be another helper, someone like me called the spirit. The third person of the triune God. And this, he's a person and he will be not over you, not around you, but with you and in you. You know what that means? For the spirit of God to be dwelling in you. Verse 16 probably gives us a good hint. Jesus says he will be with you forever. What that means for Jesus not just to be over you but in you. It means your heart is not a rental space. You are not a temporary location for him. You are not a temporary relationship where he discards you after a while. The spirit is permanently residing inside of you. The spirit is not a a short-term tenant. He's a lifelong companion. He is joined in you. Your relationship with God, it does not have to be the surface, superficial relationship that we have with people. But the fact that he is in you, it has the potential to be the deepest relationship that you know. You don't just have to experience God with your mind, with your hands, but you can experience God in your heart. Because the spirit of God, Jesus says, is in you. And this is why Jesus died on the cross. Jesus died on the cross so that we could be united where we are in Christ and Christ is in us and we can experience life with God. Sky Jetony, he's uh, an author that I've been getting a lot of ideas from, in this book, With, he says it like this, quote, fulfilling God's desire to be with us is why Jesus went to the cross. He did not die merely to inaugurate a mission, life for God, or to demonstrate a principle of love for others to emulate life over God, or to appease divine wrath, life under God. While each of these may be rooted in truth and affirmed by scripture, It is only when we grasp God's unyielding desire to be with us that we begin to see the ultimate purpose of the cross. It is more than a vehicle to rescue us from death. It transports us into the arms of life. So two quick applications before we go into our last point. For those of you who might be new to church, if you're exploring the faith, this Christianity is kind of new or that I'm returning to, just know that as Christians we believe life with God, it begins with Jesus. Nothing about Christianity will make sense unless you are with Jesus. As a married person, now that I'm married, I cannot do what I want anymore. I have to always ask permission to my wife. Anything I do, my friends call me, go, want to hang out? Sure, let me ask. Can you eat this? Sure, let me ask. Can you do this? Sure, let me ask. My bills, they are higher than ever. I'm not just paying for me, I'm paying for her. Our bills are going up together. My lifestyle has changed. I have to do everything differently now in the household. I must keep it clean. I must put the toilet seat down. It's a, it's a burden sometimes. But here's the thing. If you saw on the outside, like, why are you doing this? Why are you living this way? It only makes sense because I'm in union with my wife. It's because I'm with her. That's the only reason why that makes sense. And for a lot of us here, Christianity, it makes very little sense until you actually are with Jesus. When you're with Jesus, start there. What does, what, who is Jesus? What does it look like? And that's when you'll see all this crazy stuff about Christianity. It looks a little different in light of being in union with Jesus. But if you are a Christian and you believe that I do have a union with Christ, I put my faith in him, why is it that we're so not happy? Like why do we struggle really feeling close to God even though this great reality of the cross brought us together? And that's where it leads to this last point that I want to end with, which is what it looks like to experience life with God. You know, what's interesting is uh, Jesus, he says back in John 14, uh, his death is going to lead to this intimacy with God where I am in you and you are in me. But what's interesting is throughout this passage, he knows Jesus, he keeps telling his disciples to do something. In verse 15, for example, if you look at it, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then at the end of the passage, verse 21, if you look at it again, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and, I, and he will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. Let's break that down a little bit. Uh, when Jesus says, Keep my commands, keep my commands, I don't know about you. I think of like this checklist of like, okay, uh, do this, do this, do this. Got it. Am I doing this? I didn't do this. I, that's my mentality. I don't think that's what Jesus is thinking when he says, Keep my commands. And the reason why I don't think that's what he's thinking is because in, earlier in John chapter thirteen verse thirty-four, he mentions the exact same word "command" in a different way. Look what he says in John thirteen verse thirty-four. Jesus says, "A new command I give you, that you love one another, just as how I loved you." I don't think we could ever go, "Did I love someone today?" Like Jesus loved me? Yes, check. That, like that's not the way this works. It's another way that I think encapsulates it better is this is Jesus is saying, "Keep a certain way." Do this a certain way. Live life a certain way where you love one another as I love you. It's a precept. It's something that shapes your behavior, your thoughts. And Jesus is saying that we must follow, we must keep his ways. And when you keep Jesus' ways, something happens. Something transforms and you kind of get a hint of it at verse 21. I will manifest myself to him. Manifest is in, literally means to reveal. And so what Jesus is saying is that when you are following Jesus' ways, When you are practicing the things that Jesus is telling us to practice, you will get a greater vision of Jesus. It will be like Aslan. He will become bigger and bigger and bigger as you follow the way of Jesus. And this explains why for so many Christians who say and believe that I have union with Jesus, he's my Lord and Savior, why he still feels so small. Because even if you have union with him, you are not experiencing him. You have union with God, but you are missing this key aspect, which is on the screen, this thing that theologians say, which is communion with God. There is union, but to enjoy that union, there must be communion with him. Where it's not just we're united, but we are really experiencing that unification with Jesus. When I do premarital counseling, one thing I tell all the couples is, because they're usually stressed out about the wedding, like, you know, the wedding, there's so many things happening, so many things to plan, and they get really stressed about the details, and again, really important, because the wedding is when two people come together, union happens between the two of them, but I always make sure in our premarital counseling sessions, go, hey, you know, you're not just having a wedding, you're going to be married, like, what's your marriage life going to look like? In other words, how are you going to experience communion? How are you going to experience each other? Are you going to have date nights? Like You've got to really plan that out. But otherwise, your marriage is going to feel really dead. Because you might still be united, but you are not communing with each other at all. And this is why for a lot of Christians, we might be married to Jesus, but it's a dead marriage. It feels like a dead marriage. Because we have union with him. The cross is the one that, that makes that happen. But our communion with him is not there because there's no date nights. We don't know how to relate with Jesus. There's just this reality of union, and that's it. And this is where, as Christians, we practice things that are called the spiritual disciplines. It's not something that we are to earn our union, but it's to experience communion with God. And when you experience this with God, these are actually very counter-habitual when you view it that way. Because normally, as Christians, we do something to for the sake of a greater goal. And when we want to do things with Jesus or with God, it's always oftentimes for a greater reason. If you're living life under God, it's to gain his blessing. Over God, it's to gain smarter know about how to live life or life for God so you become a leader. But you know you are experiencing true communion with God when you are doing those things for the sake of God. Nothing else. It's not to get something. It's just to enjoy him and to be with him. Now, what does this look like, though? Who can you think of That you know, this is is a picture of life with God. This is the communion with God. Who does that? And this is where uh, Sunday school helps. The Sunday school answer always is, it's Jesus, right? (laughs) Oh, Jesus is the answer for everything. And Jesus is our point of reference. He experienced full communion with God. But here's the caveat. A lot of times when we think, oh yeah, Jesus, he felt so close to God. Because he's God. He's the triune God and so forth. But you know, if you read the gospels, the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they really labored this idea that Jesus was human. Fully human, who was hungry, who wept, who cried, who suffered. Fully human like us, and also like us, filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit. And Jesus, he was someone who walked on this earth filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, because he experienced constant communion with God. And this did not happen automatically. When you see Jesus in the Gospels and you read about his life, which, again, I said last week, it's so fascinating like who Jesus really is. Jesus he never told his disciples, read your Bible, have a devotional time. He never did that. He would, just read his, he would just quote the scriptures. Jesus, he would never tell the disciples, make sure you fast. Jesus would just fast. He would, in fact, it was really rare for even Jesus to tell them to pray. And Jesus would say, hey, I'm going to pray, come with me. And that's Jesus' invitation to all of us. When Jesus says, hey, I'm going to be doing all these things, but he tells us what? Come follow me. Come follow me, all of you who are tired of living your life, burdened. All of you who are going through sadness and struggles. All of you who are weary. What Jesus is saying is come follow me. See what I do. Experience what I do. And experience rest for your souls. Rest for your souls. Because when you follow me, you will see what communion with God looks like. The cross accomplishes union. But what we see Jesus is doing is communion with him. And so what we're going to do is in two weeks, in the new sermon series, we're going to look at the life of Jesus. And we're going to see the practices that he does. And this, you can narrow it down to these right here on the next screen. These are different practices. Ways and practices that Jesus related to the Father to experience communion. And what we want to do is each week break it down. Going, what is this? Why did Jesus do this? How did this lead to communion with God? And how can we do this? Not so that we could earn a relationship with God, but so that we could experience it. How can we experience this for ourselves? And the goal is for us to practice this so that we could come alive and really feel like God is with us. To experience that reality for us. And we need that. We really need that as a church. C.S. Lewis, again, he's uh, someone who I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with. Um, he's one of the most influential Christian writers in the 20th century. Uh, and some of you might know his story. He was actually an atheist his whole life. But that at the age of 32, he became a Christian. And he had this radical conversion experience. And through Lewis, you have classic works where he wrote mere Christianity, he wrote the screw tape letters, he wrote the, the Chronicles of Narnia series, which is kind of almost illustrating the faith. And that was kind of Lewis's life as a post-Christian, as, as a converted Christian. And a lot of us might know that, but there's something that you probably don't know, which is when uh, Lewis, when he was 53 years old, so it's about 21 years after he became a Christian, there's a series of letters that were discovered that he wrote to different friends, and he told them to all his friends, hey, I'm 53, and now I believe in the gospel. I, I believe in the gospel now. And it was just very confusing. He was like, wait, you're, you converted at 32, or I'm sorry, yeah, at age 32, you wrote all these Christian books, and you're saying you didn't believe the gospel till now? Like, what are you talking about? And Lewis, you know, his friends were obviously confused as well, and he explained it this way. He told his friends, quote, I had before assented to the doctrine, that there yeah, I assented to the doctrine years earlier, the Christian doctrine, And I would have said I believed it. But then, one blessed day, it suddenly became real to me and made what I had previously called belief look absolutely unreal. My theoretical belief became a reality to me. That is perhaps the most blessing thing that has ever happened to me. How little we know of Christianity who think that the story ends with conversion. What Lewis is saying there is, in the midst of me converting, of me writing all those Christian books, of explaining people what Christianity is, It really didn't hit me, the reality of who Jesus was, until this weird moment in my life when I was older. And no one knows, based on these letters, what happened, but we know something happened, because Lewis keeps talking about it. How he had this moment with God, and I can't help but think that this is a moment for Lewis where Lewis was not living under, over, or for God, but he experienced life with God in this moment. And I can't help but think for a lot of us here in this church, this is us, we are Lewis at age 32. Where we know God, we believe God, we accept him theoretically, we do things for God, and yet the gospel is not real to us because we don't know life with God. We have not experienced him. And so my hope and prayer as we journey and as we learn how we commune with God, that we could have that Lewis experience. We go, you know, I look back at 2022, that version of myself, and even though I claimed I was a Christian, how far was I from really knowing the true and living God? Because Aslan's getting bigger and bigger and becoming more real because I'm communing with him. And I just pray that that could be our church. We could feel God is really with us. And so as I invite the praise team up, can I invite us to have a moment to pray before the Lord? Uh, We do this as a church after we hear God's word to just have that time in response. And wherever you are at in your life with God, it could be you're tired. It could be you feel far from him. It could feel you feel burdened. Whatever it might be, just know that God, I really believe with all my heart, he is inviting us in this season that we don't have to live and relate to God that way. That we can experience him in a personal way because God is a personal God whose invitation is always to us. And he invites us to really know him in a way that perhaps we have not experienced him yet. And so can we take a moment though first to just really pause and to examine where are we with the Lord? How real is he in our lives? How have we been relating to him? And then afterwards, we'll have a word of prayer just asking God to reveal himself to us in a deeper way. So let's take a moment to pause, to pray, to have an honest time of response to him. And then afterwards, we'll all pray together. So let's pray.